Thank you. You know, one of the challenges of um, speaking for Martin Luther King is that as time progresses and more years pass by, you, you wonder if people can connect, if there's relevancy. Um, I remember my years of living here in Massachusetts. I lived up here and spent quite a bit of time on this campus. My sister was a student here at ENC while I was a student about 45 minutes to an hour from here in Worcester. And we would alternate which campuses we spent the weekends at. And as time progressed, it was during these years of being on a college campus that I began to wrestle with my faith. I wrestled with, what did my faith actually mean? It, uh, one, of the, one of the hazards of growing up in the church, of those, of many of you here grew up in the church, maybe you didn't, is that you kind of take your faith for granted and you, and you think it's just this thing that you do. But it was while I was on the college campus that there were things that were happening during my time, uh, during my time of being here. And I was here in, in this area before many of you were even born. Um, there were things happening in the country. There were things happening in the world that challenged what I understood my faith to actually mean. And I think one of the good things about Dr. Martin Luther King that helps us to make sure that he stays relevant is that the world tends to look at him just as a civil rights leader. The world tends to just look at him through that lens and say that he was the one who came and he led the civil rights era. And so he did a good job, and so we're going to remember him for that. But I think for those of us who are people of faith, he is ever relevant for us. He is constantly relevant for us because it wasn't so much civil rights that challenged him. It was the thing of his time. But he was wrestling with what did this faith that he professed mean? The world looks at Martin Luther King through the lens of a civil rights activist. But to really understand Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., you must look at him through the lens of a Christian, of a preacher of the gospel, because it was the, it was the values, it was the principles of his faith that challenged him to speak up. And I think if we begin to look and embrace him in that way, the very same thing that moved him and compelled him to action to be an agent of change will be the very same thing if we take our faith seriously that will compel us to do the very same thing. It'll cause us to look around. It'll cause us not to just, you know, bring up the chair of, of, of fights of long ago that may still be going on now, but it'll cause us to look around and say, What's going on in the world? And how does my faith inform my action on this particular issue or this particular topic? Robert Benjamin shared with me that you guys have, your theme has been out of Isaiah 61. And I'm going to read a portion of that scripture for you. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 out of the prophet Isaiah. But before I do that, I want us to listen to some words that are from Dr. King. I'm going to read a small excerpt. This is not something that you will typically hear. It's not from one of his speeches. It's actually him wrestling with his faith, him wrestling with nonviolence. He was a reluctant leader in the civil rights movement. He did not want to lead. He chose to do so because his faith compelled him to do something. But I want you to hear his words as he reflects on this whole issue of nonviolence. He's preaching. This is 10 years after 
He is now 10 years past seminary. He's now 30 years old. This is nine years before he is taken from the world. And he is wrestling with ideas. He's wrestling with his faith. He's wrestling with seeing people like Mahatma Gandhi and wrestling with what does this all mean? And I want you to listen to his wrestling, to, what he, to where he settles and how his faith informs. It's, 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 it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I want you to just hear it. So please listen carefully. These are his words. This is in 1960 he is speaking. He says, not until I entered theological seminary, however, did I seriously, did I begin a serious intellectual quest for a method to eliminate social evil. I was immediately influenced by the social gospel. In the early 50s, I read Rauschenbusch's Christianity and the Social Crisis, a book which left an indelible imprint on my thinking. Of course, there were points at which I deferred with Rauschenbusch. I felt that he had fallen victim to the 19th century cult of inevitable progress, which led him to an unwarranted optimism concerning human nature. Moreover, he came perilously close to identifying the kingdom of God with a particular social and economic system, a temptation which the church should never give into. But in spite of these shortcomings, he gave to American Protestantism a sense of social responsibility that it, of social responsibility that it should never lose. The gospel at its best deals with the whole man, not only his soul but his body, not only his spiritual well-being but his material well-being. Any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that condemn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. After reading his book, I turned to a serious study of the social and ethical theories of the great philosophers. During this period, I had almost despaired of the power of love in, in solving social problems. The turn the other cheek philosophy and the love your enemies philosophy are only valid, I felt, when individuals are in conflict with other individuals. When racial groups and nations are in conflict, a more realistic approach is necessary. Then I came upon the life and the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. As I read his words, I became deeply fascinated by his campaign of nonviolent resistance. The whole Gandhian concept of satyagraha, satya is truth, which equals love, and graha is force. Satyagraha thus means truth force or love force, was profoundly significant to me. As I delved deeper into the philosophy of Gandhi, my skepticism concerning the power of love gradually diminished. And I came to see for the first time that the Christian doctrine of love operating through Gandhian method of nonviolence was one of the most potent weapons available to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. At this time, however, I had merely an intellectual understanding and appreciation of the position with no firm determination to organize in a socially effective situation. I'm going to skip over a piece, and he says, as he continues to wrestle with what does this, the boycotts and what's happening in Alabama at the time in Selma and down in Montgomery. He said, at the beginning of the protests, 
people called on me to serve as their spokesman. And accepting this responsibility, my mind, consciously or unconsciously, was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount and the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance. This principle became the guiding light of our movement. Christ furnished the spirit and motivation while Gandhi furnished the method. The Sermon on the Mount. The words of Jesus Christ to the church, to believers on how they should live and how they should care. We have all heard that it is said that you must love God and love people. When Jesus was pressed by, 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 by his disciples and Jesus was pressed by the Pharisees of this day and they were trying to catch him in the trap to ask him, what is the great commandment? What is the greatest commandment? He says, it's love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, your soul, and with all your strength. And... Love your neighbor as you love yourself. When we live in a world and we profess to be a Christian, we have to begin to ask ourselves, what does love look like? Martin Luther King had the same struggle. He had to wrestle with terms like love and righteousness or justice, as it is commonly known or spoken of today. What does it mean to be a Christian living in a world where love is abused and misunderstood and justice is elusive for so many people? If we proclaim to be Christians, we too must wrestle with concepts like love and justice. For it was love and justice that provided the means by which we could even be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave the only just thing, person that could could put things back together again. He gave his son as a sacrifice for all of us. Martin Luther King Jr. understood or was wrestling with these two concepts of many other things. And what did it mean that if I was professing this faith, if I was preaching this gospel, but yet I was living in a world where I couldn't see it being lived out? How do I speak to others about loving when the things that you are going through are unlovely? How do I speak to truth? How do I speak the truth to powers to get them to understand that we are called to brotherhood? Martin Luther King Jr. lived in a time when one of the greatest evils of our time was racial inequalities. And we still have racial inequalities today and we still need to speak to them. But there are, there are other things that are going on in our time and you have to ask ourselves, we, those of us who profess to be Christians, must ask ourselves, what does my faith say about this thing or these issues that I see around me? Where does faith come into play? How do I affect change? Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't trying to change the world. He was just preaching the gospel. I'm going to say that again. He was not trying to change the world. He did not wake up one morning and say, I'm going to lead the civil rights movement. I'm going to change the world. He said, I'm going to preach the gospel. And I think sometimes we have cheapened the gospel because we live our lives as if the gospel has no meaning. It has no relevance. We crucify Christ afresh day in and day out because we don't live to the principles for which it stood and still stands today. 
What does it mean to be a Christian living in the 21st century? What does it mean? I'll go even further and clarify that even more because just to say you're a Christian doesn't always mean the same thing anymore. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? To profess and to live a life with the principles that were, that were taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. What does it mean to live that kind of life in a world that is twisted with evil? I think the lessons of Martin Luther King Jr. are just as relevant today in 2013 as it was then. We don't have to look so far back to talk about all that he did and just remember it as it was just a historical event. Because history, if not, if we're not careful, repeats itself over and over and over again. Martin Luther King Jr. was called to speak to college students just like you and to help to lead them in their organizing because they understood that they were going through some things that just did not equate with what they understood in their faith. And so for you today, I, I want to challenge you to do the same thing. I want to challenge you that your faith must be relevant. There's something that kept Martin Luther King Jr. going, and it wasn't because he was trying to be famous. He believed within the core of his being the gospel message, and it was wanting to see that lived out before him that compelled him to endure all kinds of evil. Jesus, when he began his ministry, quoted the words of the, uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61. And let me read those words for you now. Isaiah 61. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I don't know about you, but before I read the, the fourth and final verse, there, there is something there that the spirit of the Lord compels the believer to do. I don't know if you heard it as I read it, but our faith is not just about getting up and going to a worship service and coming home and having this personal piety with God where we feel holy. Our faith compels us to open our eyes and look around because the world is broken and it needs fixing. And God has left the church of Jesus Christ as his ambassadors, as his witness. We are God's strategy for changing the world. So if you profess Christ, you already have the assignment to be an agent of change for the kingdom of God to be established. Let me read the final verse, chapter 4, that I want to include in my, in my words to you today. You, I'm adding in the you because it says they, but he's really talking to those who the spirit of the Lord is upon. 
They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I'm going to read that again. They, you and I, who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. You and I, we will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. My friends, to truly be agents of change, something must happen to us that shapes what is within us so that, excuse me, so that we may bring change around us. When Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, it's love and justice that compelled him to proclaim it. It was love for his father, love for humanity. And the fact that justice needed to be initiated into, into the world. He brought justice. He brought righteousness. The kingdom of God is near. And I represent it for the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me. The very same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the very same spirit that is at work in the life of the believer. It is the very same spirit that was at work in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For the spirit of the Lord was upon him and anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the captives free. It was the very thing that compelled him that in the face of adversity, when he was going to be beaten and he was going to be arrested and he was going to be spat upon and they were going to accuse him of all kinds of things. He, he did not have to look at what he was enduring because he understood when the apostle Paul says that I want to, I want to know the suffering of my Lord. So many times in our Christian life, we don't want to suffer. We want to run from it. But the cause of Christ is righteousness. And a righteousness that is embedded in love. And so we must now begin to ask ourselves, you must begin to ask yourselves as you sit here on a college campus, what is the purpose of my faith? Is it just to be able to check a box and say that I, I'm a Christian? Or does my faith now compel me to action? Does it compel me to open my eyes and look around and see what's, what are the injustices of my time? Where are the inequalities that are happening in my time? What is the thing that, that flies in the face of God in my time? And my faith compels me to speak the gospel and to speak it always. No matter what may come, no matter what I may suffer as a result of it. We are God's strategy for transforming the world. And you, are, you and I are called to be agents of change by rebuilding our ruined cities. I come from the Bronx, and I'm quite sure here, not too far from Boston and not too far from here, you can look around and you can see that cities are ruined all around us, perhaps even where you may come from. What's ruining our cities? What's polluting the waters of our time? What are we sitting silent in the midst of it and allowing it to just happen around us? We are called to restore the God-honoring values that Christ came to establish, the principles of the kingdom of God. And we are called to renew our commitment to love and justice as God intended it. 
I don't know about you, but as I read the words of Dr. Martin Luther King over and over again, as I wrestle with some of the things that he has said, I can't help but wonder if we, if we get what he was all about. Dr. Martin Luther King wasn't just about black and white reconciliation and leveling the playing field of inequalities. He was about humanity, brotherhood. What does it mean to love? Let me read one last excerpt from you that I want you to consider. It was him wrestling with the whole meaning of the word love and what that meant. As he came into understanding, as he came into an understanding of what this whole love thing was about. He says, it simply means that the Christian virtues of love, mercy, and forgiveness should stand at the center of our lives. There is the danger that those of us who have lived so long under the yoke of oppression, those of us who have been exploited and trampled over, those of us who have, who have had to stand amid the tragic midnight of injustice and indignities will enter the new age with hate and bitterness. But if we retaliate with hate and bitterness, the new age will be nothing but a duplication of the old age. We must blot out the hate and the injustice of the old age with the love and justice of the new. This is why I believe so firmly in nonviolence. Violence never solves problems. And we live in a world that's very violent, my friends. It only creates new and more complicated ones. If we succumb to the temptation of using violence in our struggle for justice, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. And our chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. We have before us the glorious opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of our civilization. There is still a voice crying out in terms that echo across the generation saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your father, which is in heaven. This love might well be the salvation of our civilization. This is why I'm so impressed with our motto for the week, freedom and justice through love, not through violence, not through hate, no, not even through boycotts, but through love. It is true that as we struggle for freedom in America, we will have to boycott at times, but we must remember as we boycott that a boycott is not an end within itself. It is merely a means to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor and challenge his false sense of superiority. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this type of understanding, goodwill, that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. My friends, have you learned to love as Christ really has called us to love? Have you learned? That's my time telling me I should be finished. Have you learned to see evil around you and say this flies in the face of all that Christ came to stand for and to initiate? If you can say yes to those things, then my next and final question to you is this. 
What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? It's nice to stop once a year and remember the good works of Dr. Martin Luther King and remember him as a man, but we would do a dishonor and a disservice to what he was trying to do and what he stood for. He was preaching the gospel, and the gospel that was relevant for the civil rights era is still relevant for what we are facing today. The challenge to you is, what is the meaning of your faith? And what relevance does it have in a world that is still as twisted today as it was during the days of Dr. Martin Luther King? Will you rise to the challenge and let your faith compel you to be an agent of change? Or will you sit in silence and just watch evil pervade the next generation? The answers to those questions are between you and God, my friend. My prayer for you today is that we will be bold and courageous enough to wrestle with our faith and then act according to what God says to each one of us. God bless you.